If you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 1, the first chapter of Isaiah. If you're new to the Bible, and perhaps we even gave you a Bible this morning, there's a table of contents, and you can find the book of Isaiah. It's an Old Testament prophet. It's a larger book in the Old Testament. So if you open the Bible to the middle, book of Psalms, and start working your way to the right, you'll find Isaiah in, in no time. Well, it's that time of year where we make plans for the next year. And that's either exciting or depressing or a little bit of both. Um, New Year's resolutions, and maybe it's a fitness plan. Maybe it's a, I'm going to drop a vice plan. I'm going to eat better. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to go into work earlier so I can leave earlier, or who knows what, relationship kinds of plans. It's nice that we get do-overs, if you will, Um, refocus, um, recharge, put things in perspective, set out the course for the year, the new business plan, whatever it might be. Tis the season. What I'd like to do this morning and next Sunday would be to get you to think about what God is going to do this next year. What is God going to be up to in 2015? What's His plan for this next year? I think that might even be better than us talking about our plans for the next year, as important as those might be. What's God going to be like, let's put it in those terms, in 2015? So we'll do this this Sunday, Lord willing, and next Sunday, and then we'll return to our study of Luke. We'll be in the 21st chapter of Luke, and so if you're dying for verse-by-verse exposition, there's probably at least a thousand messages you can find online, and uh, not now, please. Um, but I thought it would be good for us to to step back and say, okay, I'm thinking about me, 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 my year ahead. Nothing wrong with thinking about what we want to do. Maybe it's to honor God more. But what's God going to be like? What's he up to this year? And really, I want to talk about who God is. Because if you know who God is, that will actually be the most important thing about you in 2015. I'm not sure who first said it, but it's a great quote. What you think of when you think of God is the most important thing about you. It's a great line. Especially since we're supposed to love God with all that we are, including our minds. When you have the thought of God, what you think about tells more about you than anything else. And I would like to help out. Pastorally, I'm burdened by this. Uh, I'm burdened about it for my own life. I want to think rightly about God, who He is, how He acts, so that I can even respond the right way in 2015. And I want to help you with that also. So I'm sort of giving you my top 10 list. I'm sure it could be a top 20 list, top 50 list. I'm not trying to exhaust this. Uh, but in the next couple of weeks, some reminders about, about who, who is this God? What is He like? What's He going to be doing this year so I can respond the right way? Okay? So, number one... In 2015, God is going to be holy. God is going to be holy in 2015. There's a reason why that's number one on the list. I know we've been taught by America's profound, amazing theologian, the theologian named Oprah, um, that God's only attribute is love. Um, But when you stop and think about who God is and you look at God from a biblical perspective, holiness tops the list. And you'll see why in just a moment. And I'm not saying for a moment that God isn't love. But holiness tops the list, and it does so on purpose. Okay? Now, when we think of holy, what do we think of? 
We think of outdated because when we think of holy, even the way we use holy most often in our conversations today is in a, is in a put down kind of way, in a negative kind of way, because we'll say to somebody else, oh, so you're holier than thou, right? That's how we use it most often, I think, except in church contexts. Holier, oh, he's holier than thou. She's holier than thou. It's fascinating that we use antiquated English, thou, when we say that, we give that put down, because in a sense we're saying that's an outdated concept. Holiness is an outdated concept. And here's somebody thinking that they're holier than we are, and we don't even know what it means, we just know that it's bad. Well, God is holier than thou, okay? (laughs) He's holier than you are. He's holy in his essence, the very uh, center of who he is. And let me just give you a simple definition before we jump into Isaiah 1. He's different. Holiness means different. It comes from, in the original language, it just means set apart, different. When you get out your Christmas dishes, if you did, we forgot. But if you get out your Christmas dishes, I'm serious. I'm always like, oh, I forgot we had those. (sighs) Maybe next year. If you get out your Christmas dishes, you're getting out your holy dishes because they're not everyday dishes. They're unique, okay? So God is holy. He is different. He is unique. And that's why we even have it be, first of all, who is God going to be? He's going to be different from everyone, everything, his whole creation. He's going to be different. So Isaiah chapter 1 is a great text to help us see the differentness of God. And let's go ahead and look at it. Isaiah 6, it's a classic text. That's why I chose it. Verse 1 says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I can't resist, classic John MacArthur line. Nobody cares about that unless your name is Uzziah. Anyway, um, (laughs) it actually would have been relevant historically. It's a big deal. We're not going to get into it right now. Um, But tied to a historic event in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So it's this kingly imagery. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, this angelic being. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Verse 3 says, And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, is the Lord of warfare, is the Lord of power, is the idea, the Lord of might, strength, is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. This is Isaiah speaking. Woe is me. I'm dead. I'm in trouble. This is terrible. For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is terrified, right? The Lord of power, the Lord of might, the Lord of warfare, and I'm a sinner and I'm in His presence and He's not. And not only that, the whole earth is filled with His glory because He's the Creator Sovereign. It all belongs to Him, including me, Isaiah, including my people, and we have not honored Him as God. And with the whole earth filled with His glory and He's the strong, mighty one, I'm in trouble. I'm, I'm dead. I'm smoked, we would say. This is terrible. 
what I want you to see is, yes, maybe the fear factor, but, but to see that, that Isaiah, this godly prophet, and here's this godly person, sees himself as he really is in front of God, and he sees God as holy, holy, holy. God is holy. He'll be holy this year. He's always been holy because he's always been God, and he always will be God. And therefore, by definition, he'll always be holy because he's separate. He's distinct. I say this quite often, but I can't say it enough. I think when, when, we, think, uh, or when we think of holiness, we've got to think of, of different first before we think of morality, even though they're related. So when we sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the classic hymn. Every time we sing it, you know, the pastor in me wants to get up and say, what you're saying, do you know what you're saying? Do, do, you, do you know what you're saying? When you're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, you're saying different, different, different. Let's use another word for effect. You're saying, strange, strange, strange is the Lord God Almighty. Untouchable, untouchable, untouchable. Unrelatable, unrelatable, unrelatable. Distant, distant, distant. Unlike me, unlike me, unlike me. Unlike anything, unlike anyone. Apart from Revelation, which we'll get to, apart from that, we're saying unknowable, unknowable, unknowable. No point of reference, no point of reference, no point of reference. <laughs> and I'm getting worked up about this as a pastor because maybe problem number one in your life is that you don't get that. That there's one true God, the whole earth is filled with His glory. And the song of your heart is, same, same, same. Is the Lord God, the anti-Lord God, not so mighty. He's like me, He's like me, He's like me. I'm like Him, I'm like Him, I'm like Him. Touchable, reachable, close and when we do that we we are we are so spiritually on drugs it's not even funny we're we're so self-deluded self-deceived it's amazing maybe you can turn there if you'd like to but but you don't have to i'm gonna i'm gonna reference psalm 50 verse 21 it's one of my favorite psalms when it comes to needing a little jolt to my system and I hope it gives you a good little jolt to your system as well. God is going to be holy this year because He always is. And we've got to understand that, that we're dealing with the God who is very God-like. Uh, meaning He's holy. Psalm 50 verse 21 says this. These things you have done. Talking to the, to the people of God even. These, these things you have done and I have been silent. So this is God speaking to, to His people. You thought I was one like yourself. One translation says, and I almost quoted it because that's how I learned it, you thought I was just like you. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Huge offense against God is when you think He's like you are. And I would suggest to you it starts by thinking He's not different, different, different. Distant, distant, distant. Holy, holy, holy. Unique, unique, unique. There's one true living God who's always been God and always will be God. And this is His creation. Everything is different than He is. 
And you say, how is that relevant to me? It's relevant because there's only one God and you're not Him. And you're nothing like Him. And He's above you and He's beyond you. It's amazing. Newsflash! There's something more important in the world than Pat. There's something more important in the world than you. And it's of the utmost offense to pretend like the world revolves around you, but it's what we all do, naturally, as sinful beings, in denial of God's holiness, His distinction, His uniqueness. And so we've got to remember, we've, we've got to come to know the holiness of God, the distinct nature of God. He's absolutely holy. He's the ultimate untouchable, unreachable, special, distant one. I want to say more about this later, hopefully, but this is why Jesus is so important, right? In, in theology, when you're reading theological books, that they, they talk about the holiness of God, and if you will, the problem of the holiness of God. Because if you have a God who's utterly and, incomplete, and completely holy, then you can't know Him. You can't know anything about Him. He doesn't speak your language. <laughs> He's beyond your imagination. He's beyond your comprehension. You have no point of reference. And so theologians talk about God condescending. It's an important idea. Now, and, and t- typically the way we use it, theologians have been using it for years. It's nothing new. But the way we use condescending, again, is negative. You know, Oh, I couldn't believe he was being so condescending toward me. What do we mean? Talking down to me like I don't know anything and like I, don't, I, can't, I can't relate. So it's a negative idea the way we use it that way, but it's not negative when it comes to the matter of we're thinking about God unknowable, unsearchable, unreachable, so not like us, different, completely different from us. And so what we need, unless we're going to be stuck in our idolatry, is we need God to condescend. We need Him to kneel down, if you will. We, we, we need Him to come down. We need Him to relate to us. And that's where Jesus Christ comes in. John chapter 1. John chapter 1 is about the condescension of God, the speaking to us, from God. John 1.18, He has made Him known. Wow! God humbles Himself and becomes a human being so that we might know God. That's why John is so excited. John even talks in, in his gospel account and then also in, in his letters that, that we ourselves handled. We touched Him. That we would know God. That God would be revealed to us. God graciously, mercifully, kindly reveals Himself to us. But even when He does that, as extraordinary as it might be, he, he's, he's condescending. He's using language that we can relate to. He's using... But He does so perfectly in Christ. That's why we love Christ. That's why we need Christ.
first and foremost, God is holy because He's God. So when we talk about the attributes of God, we're going to talk about His holiness because we're talking about who He is as God and His being, His essence. He's different than we are. My prayer for you would be, among other things, that you would be struck by the differentness of God, the unreachableness of God apart from Jesus. Because then you'll see Him for who He is and how much you need Him. Then we get into the morality of it. Did I say this is a two-part series? This is going to be like a 22-part. No, I'm kidding. Then the morality of it comes in. Then, then we get to 1 Peter. And 1 Peter, and 1 Peter quotes Leviticus, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, As obedient children, talking to believers, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. You know, so, so now, if we can grasp that, then it makes more sense why we're supposed to do certain things and not do other things. Too often we short-circuit that. We just say, okay, here are Christian morals. Here are the don'ts and here are the do's. Or here are the do's and here are the don'ts. Well, why? Well, because mom and dad said, or because our tradition says, or just because we're, we're, we're right-wingers, or, or something. No, if we have God who's distinct and unique and He's not like the handmade deities, He really is the one true God. And He says, I want you to live a certain way to show devotion to Me because I am the one true God. Then our conduct actually is a holy conduct. It's a, it's a different conduct. It's a unique conduct. So now the motivation comes, oh, I know who God is through Christ. And, and He's unique and distinct and He's not like all, all the other faux gods. And so I want to honor Him and He's been gracious to me. And so whatever He says would be a good idea. And He made me too, by the way. So He knows what's best for me. So I want to do that to show devotion to Him. And, and so I want to live a certain way. And so we have Christian ethics. But what we're doing is we're showing that we belong to the different, different, different God. We're showing that we're in touch with reality. That we've come to know this God. And we're thankful and out of gratitude we want to do what's right. Well, how do you define right and wrong? Well, if you're God, you define right and wrong however you want to. <laughs> Who is He to do that? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Whole earth is filled with His glory. Well, He's, he's God. Whatever he, say, whatever he says, He defines right by what He says and what He does. And we belong to Him by His grace. And so we say, okay, I, this is a privilege for me to, to be holy like God is holy, to be distinct like He's distinct. It's fascinating with Israel even and, and the, the holy nation of Israel. You know, some of the things they were required to do by this holy God were things that were pretty reasonable. It would make sense why they were called to do certain things. You know, some of those things they were called to do were just weird. <laughs> Seems like, maybe not. And, you know, different scholars say, well, it was for all these health reasons, and that's why they had all of the food laws, because back then in the day, I tend to think more in line of it was because they were to be different. They were just to show that we're not like the rest of you because we don't carve images out of trees with our own hands and then bow down and worship it. 
which is a self-expression of idolatry. This God has made himself known, and he calls us to do certain things that are different, 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 because we belong to him. So let's be motivated to do what's honoring to this God because of who he is. Now let's move on to another. Another thing that God will be doing in 2015, it's really because of who He is. Number two, God is worthy. God will be worthy in 2015 because God is worthy. And the text I'd like to at least have a start with would be Revelation chapter 4. God the Son being exalted as the worthy one. Next time we sing holy, 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 think strange, 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 would you? (laughs) Another theological word, um, just so you feel like you got your money's worth today. He's transcendent. He transcends. He's beyond. You're saying transcendent, 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 beyond, beyond, beyond. Unknowable, unknowable, unknowable. And you'd say, why would you sing that and be excited about it? Because we're in a Christian context. And the Christian context is Christ made him known. He revealed him to us so that we would know him. And so we're excited about holy, holy, holy. Because in a certain sense, please don't stone me, in a certain sense to us, the unknowable, unknowable, unknowable no longer is. He's still holy. Please, again, I don't want to be blasphemous. But because of the graciousness of Christ, we can know Him, know Him, know Him. Yeah. Okay, God will be worthy because He is. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now, he's going to express the worthiness of of the Lord because of what he does as far as redemption. But here, it's just, you're the creator God. Because you're God, you're worthy. This doesn't work exactly, but when, when something is, let's just use the word worthy and bring it into English for simplicity's sake. If something's worth a lot to you, then, then you protect it. You give attention to it. You, you, you guard it. You, you, it's something you really love and adore. And, but here we're not talking about a something. We're talking about a someone. It's relational. But I suppose we could use it that way too, right? Because if a relationship is, is worth a lot to you, then you prize it. You defend it. You protect it. It's the most important thing to you. I'm just trying to help you get a grasp for worthy. God is worthy. He is worthy of your devotion. He's worthy of your attention. He's worthy of your worship. He's worthy of your... How about this? Priority number one. Certainly that's what's going on here. Worthy are you to receive power and glory and honor and all of these things because you and you alone, ties in with holiness, are the one who created all things. And so again, this comes back to how we live our lives in 2015. In 2015, the worthy one of your supreme, ultimate affection and devotion is Pat. You're like, 
gag me. Sorry, I did that in public, but I wanted to have the effect. You say, that's disgusting. That is grotesque. That, that, that is self-centered ugliness. And it is. Well, how about, it isn't if there isn't a one true God. Or if you're the center of the universe. But if you're not the center of the universe, newsflash, you're not. If you're not the center of the universe, and instead it's this one who has made all things, then he is worthy of devotion and respect and honor, and your number one priority is him. Now, Christians get this. It doesn't mean we do this. But we, we at least get it. You know, some of you with your inner Baptists are giving me the amens, you know, ever so silently. Thank you. We, we at least get this. Unbelievers don't get it. If you're not a Christian, I just want you to know that you're obligated to do this too. By nature of the fact that you're a created being, you're obligated to see Him as worthy, worthy, worthy. And to the degree that you don't, and you don't, you are an offense to God. And you are attacking His godness with your self-centered life. Because you're saying, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lord God Almighty. Because the world centers around me. So, let me get in your, your, your personal space a little bit. So, if you come here because your spouse makes you come here, but you say, you know what, I'm not a Christian, so it's not really relevant to me. It actually is relevant to you because you're not saying worthy, worthy, worthy with your life. You're saying worthy, worthy, worthy with your life. And by so doing, I just have to tell you in love, you're, you're storing up judgment. You come here because your parents come here and you don't want to come here. And you say, I'm not a Christian, so it's not really for me. But it's not a problem. It's a huge problem. Because by you having the universe center around you, you're saying worthy, worthy, worthy. And can I be offensive here? As you live your life, you're busy spiritually giving the finger to God. And let me be real blunt. And there will be hell to pay. Romans chapter 2 says you are heaping up judgment. All the storage places popping up all, all around the place. Big money in storage because we all have so much stuff. Well, you have your own little storage place. And your storage place is a storage place for God's fair wrath. Every day you live your life where you're the center of your universe and you're not worthy, worthy, worthy directing your attention to the one who is worthy. It's just more judgment for you. It's a terrible thing. There are moral ramifications for not seeing Jesus as the worthy, worthy, worthy one. And so, By God's grace, stop. By God's grace, repent of your self-worthiness priority 
get in touch with reality. There's people around you that would like you to be in touch with reality and having the world not center around you. And have your affection, your priority number one attention, value, center upon the one and only one who actually is worthy. It's Christ. It's for sure a growing burden for me as a pastor, as a parent, as a friend. It's not all going to be okay in the end. And that works for you, but I don't really get anything out of it. Well, I can tell you why you don't. Because you're God. God is worthy. We're made to give Him honor. We're made to give Him devotion. He'll be worthy this year of our affection and devotion. Christians will fail at this. Unbelievers don't have a point of reference. Christians will fail. We don't act like we should. But that is, by the way, why we see Christ as the worthy one, because He's the one who represents us perfectly to the Father. Let's move to another one. Number three, God will be in control in 2015. He'll be in control. We're in Revelation, and so let's go ahead and look at Revelation chapter 22. He'll be in control because He's already written the end. So I want to talk about how he's in control historically, in history, how he's in control personally in your life, and how he's in control even societally. I just simply want you to see in Revelation 22 that the end has already been written. So simple point of reference. Revelation 22 verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Well, I simply wanted you to see that that's how it ends. Now, the, the grace in there, I can't resist, is the fact that we would all be guilty, but the grace is those who wash their robes. And so we have redemption and forgiveness in Christ, or we would all be the ones who are condemned. But that wasn't why I had you go there. I just wanted you to go to the end of your Bible. I wanted you to go to the end of your Bible so that you could know that in this next year, God is in control. God has a plan, God has a purpose, and all things are headed somewhere. All things are headed toward that. Sure, there are cycles in history, absolutely, things repeat themselves, but ultimately, God is linear in His work in this world. And history has been going somewhere. There was a plan before time began, Ephesians chapter 1, and that plan is unfolding and that plan is headed somewhere and in the end, Christ will come. 
Today we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of the service. I want to talk about the Lord's return on a different Sunday. We won't emphasize it today. But I at least want you to know that God will be in control this year. Because history is going somewhere and so he's controlling it or it wouldn't get there. We need to remember that. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper and we'll quote from the Lord who says, until I come again. It's going somewhere. God will be in control this year. They won't be random acts. It's all headed somewhere. It's all headed here. He's in control not only on that kind of cosmic level of history, but he's also in control personally. And if you would turn to Matthew chapter 10, I think you'll find some encouragement here. So as God is unfolding history, as history is moving somewhere, as the end has been written, if we belong to him by his grace, then, then we can not be worrywarts. Do people still, still say worrywart? I just did. We don't have to be consumed and overwhelmed by anxiety and all of these things that go on. If God is in charge and God is in control, yes, the world's broken. Yes, a lot of bad things happen. But we can have confidence in Him. And Matthew chapter 10 is super helpful. As you think about your year ahead, as you think about the doctor's visits, as you think about the, the good news and the bad news and the ins and the outs and all the things that are going to happen... Here's a helpful one. God is in control. Matthew chapter 10, verse 29. Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Big picture, he's in control. little picture he's in control how God could do this I have no idea I can't even be in control of my life (laughs) an all powerful all wise caring kind gracious compassionate God through his son Jesus says this about believers In 2015, nothing will happen to you apart from God's sovereign care. This is like preventative counseling, by the way, in case you're not catching on. Okay? It doesn't mean we won't have tears. It doesn't mean we won't have pain. It doesn't mean we won't have hardships and difficult things. It doesn't mean we won't have great ups. But you you can know, and it's easier for me to tell you this now than then. You can know and I can know doesn't mean we can't tell each other. You can know that God, God is in charge. God's in control. It's, it's important that we know that. Let's move on. Well, I, I wanted to give you a cosmic one. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. That's more on a societal level. He's even in charge of those things. Therefore, he can be trusted Let's move on to number four. This year, God will be sovereign. He will be sovereign. This is a lot like holiness. It's a lot like control. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15 is a text I'd like to reference. Psalm 115, Daniel chapter 4, 
We could go so many places with this. They're all related. But I want to remind you of God's sovereignty. It's a kingly word. It's a word that has to do with being in charge. It has a a word that has to do with um, God's freedom. If you're sovereign, you're free to do what you want. If you're ultimately sovereign, you can do whatever you want to do. Um, When we say, who died and made you king? Who died and made you God? We show that we at least know something about sovereignty. Um, And if God is absolutely sovereign, then He's holy. He's free. He's different. He can do whatever He wants to do. And it's good for us to remember that. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15 says which he will display, God will display at the proper time, so looking toward the future here, he who is, this is just a, a point of praise, this is what you praise God for, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. The Bible's actually wrong there. No, it's not. I just, the Bible's not wrong. But the Bible makes statements like this, not just for effect, but so that we understand with the emphasis. God is not the only sovereign. Paul knows he's not the only sovereign because Paul knows that there's an emperor who's a sovereign. He knows there are kings. He knows there have been lots of kings. Paul himself would, you know, look up and and speak well of King David. The only sovereign? No, he's making the point profoundly, truly, the Bible isn't wrong. He's the only sovereign in the ultimate sense. He's the sovereign of all sovereigns. That's why he says King of kings and Lord of lords. He's not contradicting himself, but he's making the emphatic point. If you want to talk about being in charge, you want to talk about free, you want to talk about ultimate, God is the only sovereign. It's sort of like when David says, against you and you only have I sinned. That's so not true, right? David sinned against all kinds of people. But he's, he's pulling out the ultimacy of it. It's, it's ultimately an offense against God. Ultimately, God is free. God is sovereign. God is in charge. God does whatever he wants to do. Ultimately, even though the Bible talks about other gods, ultimately they're not gods, right? He's the only one. And it's good for us to have our cages rattled on the negative side and say, I'm not sovereign. This ties into the worthy thing. He's the only sovereign. Then it also becomes comforting, right? Because only a God who is the only sovereign and who cares about His creatures could make such a promise as to say, hairs are numbered. Not even a sparrow falls from the sky apart from the ordained will of God. You see, only an only sovereign. Could that be true about? Our view of God is way too small. We think we like Him small. We think we like Him manageable. But that God can't be trusted. And that God can't deal with your problems. He's the only sovereign. He's free to do whatever he wants to do. It's so amazing. People, we were just having this conversation this weekend with some friends about free, and we talk about freedom, and we're free to do whatever we want to do, and people get all up in arms about freeness and free choice. And I, I like what R.C. Sproul says. Okay, so, so you're free, but God is freer. 
yeah, you're free to act according to your nature. Uh, sorry, it's a fallen nature. So yeah, you're free to sin in all kinds of amazing ways. But God is the only sovereign, the ultimate sovereign. Psalm 115, verse 3, just to kind of rub us the wrong way in a good sense and put us in our place. Our God is in the heavens. That's like saying He's holy, He's distant. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Another translation says, He does whatever He pleases. And that just is so offensive to us sometimes. But it's so good and right if you're God. God does whatever He wants. And that's where I like to say, who does he think he is anyway? God or something? Yeah, the godness of God. God will act a lot like God in 2015. That's bad news for you if you're not on his side through the mediator Jesus. It's great news for you if you are. Because he's the ultimate sovereign. I could use a good dose of remembering that. Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Man, Pat Abendroth needs a good dose of that. Sometimes. No one, not even the holy angels in heaven can say, what do you think you're doing? No, because he does whatever he wants because he's the only sovereign. If you do that, you're egomaniac, self-centered, self-consumed, crazy person. Because you're not God. God is good and God is holy and God is righteous. And so whatever he does is going to be right and good. And and thankfully, he's for us. Daniel 4.37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. Well, this makes sense, even why he calls him the king of heaven. If he's the king of heaven, he should be honored. But the king of heaven, notice what it goes on to say, for all his works are right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because he's the king of heaven, so all of his works are right. And his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. He's God. He's sovereign. He's free. Let's end with this before we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Number five, finally for this morning. In 2015, God will be personal. God will be personal. We've already gone there, so I'll abbreviate. But holy, holy, holy. Distant, distant, distant. Different, different, different. Untouchable, unknowable. at the same time. Not in distinction, but in complement. He comes. He he, he steps down. And He comes to us. And He's personal. And He cares, a la Matthew chapter 10, every hair on the head. He's involved personally. I even like the way the Apostle Paul talks about his plan of redemption, how personal it is in Romans chapter 8. Those whom he foreknew, he, he, he personally cares. Jesus in Matthew 11 saying to people who've been beat up by religion and man made legalism, saying, Come to me, come to me. 
the God-man reaches out his hand, if you will, on earth when he's here, you, you, you come to me. Not through a mediator, not through some distant other way, going through all some sorts of uh, gyrations and things. He says, come to me, all of you. So this, it's this amazing kind of thing, who are weary, who are burned out and heavy laden, heavy burdened. You've got all this burden because you, you're, you're having sin and guilt and the solutions offered to you are not the solution. So it just makes it worse. And Jesus has come to me. Why would he say that? Because he's the one who can say, because I am the way. I am the resurrection. I am the life. All who come to me, I will not cast out. He's personal. We get ourselves in trouble in religion and even in Christianity, broadly speaking, when we, when we don't emphasize God's transcendence because Jesus is my buddy, pal sort of thing. We think he's just like us. Or when we only emphasize transcendence and we don't emphasize imminence. The amazing thing about the God of the Bible, the God of creation, the God of redemption, the Lord Jesus Christ is, He is utterly holy and He comes close so that we can know Him. And God help us to see Him for who He really is both this amazing, untouchable, transcendent God and the one who has come to us and cares for us. I love communion because, again, as we're so prone to wonder, as the song says, we come back to the basics of bread and wine, symbolizing body and blood, substitutionary atonement, sacrifice, reconciliation with God, sins forgiven, and you do this until I come again. Oh, Christianity is ultimately about Christ. Resting in Him. So we're going to do that together. I'm going to pray. We're going to be served. Please wait to eat till we eat together. Please wait to drink till we drink together. And let's reach out now to this God who we could never even talk to. But we go to with boldness because of Christ. Father, thank you that we can call you Father. Thank you that we can know you. Thank you that even though each of us has greatly offended you, that those who have trusted in Christ can, can come now boldly into your throne room as your word says, that you care about us and that you have a purpose and a plan for us, not just for the universe, but even for us as individuals. And you're that kind of God, not like the God of our imagination. Do great things in our midst because you're a great God worthy of praise and adoration. In fact, we know that you will do great things because we know that you have a plan and we know that whatever you do is great. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this profound and great reminder. Thank you that Jesus has given us his spirit who accompanies us even right now. In his name we pray, amen.